Welcome to episode 74 of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine and your podcast host. Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with the editors of Pharmaceutical Executive to talk about the industry trends we're anticipating in 2021. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back with editors Lisa Henderson, Julian Upton, Miranda Schmalfus, and Andy Studna. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at trueserumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. I'm happy to welcome Lisa Henderson, Editorial Director, Julian Upton, European and Online Editor, and Miranda Schmalfus and Andy Studna, Assistant Editors of Pharmaceutical Executive, to our podcast today. They're here to join me in discussing some exciting industry trends for 2021, which we recently wrote up in our January issue. With the help of our editorial advisory board, we were able to identify these trends in areas such as pricing, access, regulatory, and technology, just to name a few. Thank you for joining me today, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Elaine. So I'm going to kick things off with a recap of the two trend articles that I wrote. I followed up on a recent podcast I did with the folks at POCN, which is a network for nurse practitioners and physician assistants. These APPs, or advanced practice providers, as they call them, are emerging as an important group of stakeholders in the healthcare system. They were already on the rise, but COVID recently accelerated and accentuated their importance. As pharma looks to reach healthcare providers going forward, they shouldn't just focus on physicians anymore. These APPs can now prescribe in all 50 states, and some states even allow them to practice independently. Over the course of COVID, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services also issued various waivers last year that gave them greater freedom. And many of the people that I spoke with for my story felt that now that they've shown they can handle the increased responsibilities, that these changes could become permanent. My sources also stressed that APP should be seriously regarded as far as even building them into marketing plans. Getting to this group and educating them is especially a great opportunity because they tend to spend more time with patients and they're also better trained in communicating with them. Building long-term relationships with APPs deserves farmers attention, and my sources suggested some specific ways on how to best reach them, so you can check out my story for more information on that. I also wrote about the hot topic of diversity in clinical trials, and this again is an issue that's been around for a while, but it really became top of mind with the development of COVID therapies over the past year. It seems only logical to test on the groups that will ultimately be taking the medicines but for various reasons, that hasn't been the practice in pharma. And I list some of those barriers in my story. The issue seemed to get a boost in public attention when Moderna slowed clinical trials for its COVID vaccine in September. They wanted to recruit a more representative group of society. So hopefully that increased attention from that move will push stakeholders to make this a priority moving forward. And I spoke with someone from the FDA for that story who stated the agency's support of this initiative 
And they also explained what they're doing to change the tide. They were investing in education and outreach programs. And she also offered suggestions on how not just pharma, but physicians, communities, and other stakeholders can support this increased diversity in clinical trials. As another source for the story pointed out, this isn't just a problem for pharma to change. It's a collective need. And even though the transition seems logical and attainable, this isn't going to be an easy job. Many minority groups have built a lack of trust over the years for the healthcare industry because of how they were treated in the past. And changing minds takes time. So, you know, with acts of good faith that build trust and educating groups about the greater good, you know, hopefully we'll see more diverse participants in trials in 2020 and beyond. So Lisa, now I'm going to turn things over to you to discuss your story on the manufacturing implications of COVID and gene therapy. What can you tell us? Thanks, Elaine. So we chose the manufacturing aspects, even though we have covered the manufacturing aspects of cell and gene therapies for, I think, the past two issues, but in different respects. So this year was chosen against the backdrop of COVID, primarily because of course, the COVID clinical trials have been top of mind and just a complete focus, whereas I don't think people even understood what clinical trials were. It's now in the general news. So of course, it's a huge topic. So, but the issue is, especially with, um, you know, it's kind of the platform technologies of mRNA and, you know, other biologics. And, and then you compare that to cell and gene therapies is that the manufacturing of those is literally built into the therapy. So unlike a tablet, unlike your single molecules, you know, where they're invented and then shipped off, you know, over to, you know, be manufactured in a wherever. And this, the, the manufacturing of the therapy is like central to the therapy itself. So to that end, COVID brought a spotlight to how advanced therapies are being highlighted. So for example, although this isn't a manufacturing issue, I don't think it was, well, no, it was a fill issue, but for the Pfizer, no, no, I'm sorry, for the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, at one point, they realized that the vials had only been filled halfway. And so that some of those participants in the trial, some of the patients, you know, didn't receive the full dose. And, you know, there was concern, obviously, you know, if they didn't get the full dose and, you know, your data is all messed up and what does this mean? You know, they eventually worked it out with the regulators and fixed the manufacturing issue. But again, that kind of news pivoted to the front of the pages, you know, and people knew, oh, here's a manufacturing issue. How do you not fill your vials all the way? How does this even happen? You know, so the rest of the article, you know, steps out from the COVID and just highlights delays among manufacturers of advanced therapies and in the CMC area. So there was a lot of, there's just issues, you know, the FDA or EMA, they just want to know, you know, if you're comparing your biologic to something else, you just need a lot more data and a lot more concern goes, gets just inherently gets built into the process. So I hope that helps answer some of those questions of what I wrote about. But of course, there's much more detail in the, in the actual piece. So thank you. Thanks, Lisa. You also wrote about real world evidence in 2021. Could you share some insights on that? Yeah. So I'd like to say that it's akin to what we're seeing in, in the manufacturing space. So the reason why 
again, we've been talking about real world evidence for quite some time and how it's going to be used in either supplementing your clinical trial data or you know, uh, using it in your regulatory submission, using real world evidence to enhance your positioning with payers based on you know, actual evidence of the drug being used in patients, you know, the qualities or the actual improvements. So there's been so much talk about real world evidence that it almost got lost in the shuffle until COVID, of course, came to the front. And then you're looking at, oh, I mean, I know a lot of people are paranoid that we went too fast in clinical trials, but that's not the case. You know, we know that the data and the stringency of the data and the processes is fine, you know, but people, when it's tested in smaller populations, which is you know, true of most cell gene therapies, you can't look at that data the same way. Is that clinical trial data enough? So, and then here in having real world data for COVID, of course, people want to know how is it working on a day-to-day basis? You know, how are those vaccines working? How long are they going to last? No one really knows, you know, because we did what, 10, 12 months of data and you can only do that. And that, and it all looks real good, or we wouldn't be getting those vaccines. But, you know, you got to take it that one step, two step, three step, four step, how many years further, how long will this vaccine last? And then translate that into, you know, the new world of advanced therapies, how long will the, the miraculous effects of Zolgensma, how long will they last, you know, in these children that receive the drug and can actually walk and function. I mean, we hope it's a lifetime, of course, but they got to study it. So that's pretty much the angle for real world evidence. And it's not, I truly believe it is, it's not going away. I've heard over and over, you know, that real world evidence and this kind of real time data and looking into your data pre or post market is, you know, it's, it's coming to every area of, of pharma and drug development. Thanks, Lisa. Julian, speaking of data, what's going on with the digitization of pretty much everything in pharma? Looking at that this year, obviously, during 2020, uh, one thing that's, that stood out for us and for lots of people was, was how much uh, we'd moved to telehealth in terms of dealing with patients and in terms of the industry dealing with HCPs. And that's obviously been a big, big thing that we've, we've seen a lot of since the beginning of the pandemic. But where else uh, is, the, is the digitalization or the digitization journey going? So I, I spoke to, um, and I'm talking about yeah, the digitization of everything. I mean, what about companies have been promising digital transformation, you know, for some years now? And has COVID has made this happen quicker or is it focused on certain areas? So I spoke to um, EY's Arda Ural, who's um, had insight about this, and uh, he still thinks that pharma is, he said, in its infancy in terms of uh, digital transformation. Certainly, if we look at other industries such as retail, hospitality, um, banking, media, pharma's well behind for, for various reasons, and, and it has to be for some reasons. So Arda did talk about, about the telehealth thing and about patient engagement. Of course, we can't ignore that for 2020 and for going forward into 2021. But there's also the commercialization angle. People were, um, companies were, were launching drugs, you know, without any kind of physical presence. They were, they were, they were launching drugs, you know, virtually. And, and that happened over 2020 and it will continue to happen uh, in 2021. Clinical trials, of course, move to virtual decentralized trials is definitely 
something that's going to stay with us. And another interesting thing was deal making, which I think is a bit, a bit if you look a bit like at the commercialization angle, this is this is also interesting in that. Uh, and of course, we've got the JP Morgan thing coming up, uh, which is going to be virtual. But, you know, people, you know, putting out IPOs don't have to do the roadshow anymore. They, they, they're meeting people, they're signing off on big deals without meeting. It's all virtual. That's all part of the digitization of, of the industry, which is, of course, going to continue. So, you know, that, that's all going to gather pace, I think. And there's, there's also issues of supply chain and turning functions like compliance and market access, the AI solutions that are going to be around and that are going to take more hold next year. And I suppose the question is, is whether companies are going to invest themselves or whether they're going to partner. And I think, according to uh, Arda Earl, anyway, it's, it's probably best to maintain a balance between those two because, uh, you know, you need to get yourself a good digitalization partner if you're going to, to see this uh, digital transformation through properly. So that's, that's what I'm focusing on there. Yeah, it's going to be hard to avoid the digital world moving forward, that's for sure. You also wrote about shifts in regulatory leadership. What are some things to watch for in that area? Yeah, well, of course, we've had pretty heated time of it, both in the US and, and the UK. And that's what I that's what I focus on. And uh, the US, of course, we were putting this together towards the end of last year. So, you know, certain things have, have happened in both uh, countries. Uh, and of course, COVID is the, the, the looming specter that's that's sort of hovering above everything. But uh, if we look at the, you know, I spoke to a couple of people about Biden, what, what are his priorities going to be? I mean, I spoke to two or three people, actually, some people think that Biden might be more hands off than Trump. Others think that he will be, you know, more hands on. But initially, there'll be a focus on getting out that COVID vaccine, the logistics of rolling that out, and perhaps, you know, new new legislation on masks and on, uh, and on lockdowns and... Um, taking that perhaps more seriously than Trump seemed to be taking it. A mask mandate was something that was mentioned to me. It was also pointed out that the Trump administration had dispatched fewer warning letters, fewer inspections were classified as official action indicated. And I think that the people I spoke to think that um, the Biden administration and the FDA under Biden will will start to uh, ramp that up a little bit. Of course, Biden was very much concerned with the Affordable Care Act when he was part of the Obama administration. And we, I think we can see a return to that that kind of focus. And there's a new appointment, at the next Secretary of Health and Human uh, Services, which is Savia Becerra, I think. And um, it has been noted that he was pretty, pretty aggressive dealing with mergers and acquisitions in the past uh, in California, where, he's, where he was from. So perhaps we can expect to see more scrutiny on that front as well. That's on the US side, but on the UK side, which is very interesting, because as I was putting this together, they did finally sign the, uh, the, the trade agreement w- with the EU, which had been you know, hovering about for some time. And we're getting very close to the wire on that. It was very close that to not having a deal, which would have been pretty, pretty bad for many industries, including pharma, uh, certainly in the, in the midst of a pandemic. So that's been signed. That's not to say that everything's going to be smooth running. We'll, we'll see how that relationship between the UK and the, and the EU progresses in terms of getting the right medicines across the border and not getting held up. We'll see how that sort of develops in the next few months. But I did speak to Marie Manley, who uh, did point out that actually there have been some some regulatory uh, improvements uh, because of COVID. Certainly, uh, we know about the vaccines getting um, very fast approval. In fact, the UK was the first to approve the, the Pfizer one. It's all to do with this um, rolling review that's been brought in, which again, uh, you know, has responded to industry issues, industry pressures about how long it used to take or how long it has been taking to review things and get approval. That's, that's I think, uh, one of the positive outlooks going forward is that, you know, if we're looking at Brexit, if we're looking at COVID, there is some sort of, you know, it does facilitate this, this perhaps uh, more efficient 
approach to to review and approval and we can look at maybe see what nice is going to do is that going to become more farmer friendly marie, marie manley who i spoke to seems to think that 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 is starting to happen so interesting i think after all the controversies and all the um you know turmoil of the last year it'd be interesting to see how that develops yeah thank you julian um any talk of regulatory always brings the issue of pricing into light so miranda what will be some of the major factors in pricing reform coming into play this year So my feature for January deals a lot with the what ifs surrounding drug pricing as the presidential transition takes place. So as Joe Biden becomes the next president of the United States, he certainly has a plethora of problems with, but among them is the price of prescription drugs, which remains a very urgent priority for the American public, but its position on the presidential priority list is currently unknown. I had a conversation with Managing Principal of Value and Access for ZS Associates, Ed Schoenveld, who has also written for Farm Exec in the past. He says that the priority is high and inappropriately so because prescription drug costs have been stable between 12 and 13% of the total cost of healthcare for the past 20 years. He suggests that a broader focus on the reasons for the rising healthcare costs and a means to address that more holistically would make more sense. But with issues like the COVID crisis and the need to expand healthcare at the forefront, there are doubts of any substantial progress towards controlling drug prices. Ed said he thinks that we've come closer to government legislation of some kind, and if Biden can build some bridges between Democrats and Republicans, that an agreement of action on drug pricing could be high on the list of compromise. We'll see what kind of congressional congestion we'll be running into, though, since the Democrats did win both of the Georgia runoff elections that I mentioned in my piece, and we'll have the congressional majority for now, with another round of elections coming in 2022, so we have to see what happens with that as well. But if by chance such an agreement between both sides could be reached and action taken, what would restricting drug prices look like for the drug companies? So it's likely that a lot of drugs won't get the chance to be developed. Companies are going to be forced to make difficult decisions, like considering whether investing in each drug candidate even makes financial sense for them. Ed warns that this is a dangerous seven-year experiment with our futures, and that the impact could be felt painfully so after five years. But with the COVID-19 pandemic, how easy is it going to be to pass legislation on an industry that is creating this life-saving vaccine that is saving us from these situations? But I think that though the American public is thankful to be seeing an end in sight of the pandemic, it's not going to make them forget about the hefty price tags that are attached to the everyday therapies that people use. They're still going to remain once COVID is contained. Thank you, Miranda. And Andy, why don't you wrap us up with a recap of your article on some of the lines that have been crossed due to COVID and how those might reshape the way things are done in pharma going forward. So the first change or first line cross in pharma that I touched on is that there's been a new level of collaboration between companies and pharma. And it's been a collaboration that's been enhanced by speed and agility. And looking back to the pandemic leadership CEO roundtable that we did for farm exec back in around mid-May, uh, many of the CEOs that were part of that suggested that their companies were gaining approvals faster than they ever had. And for example, in that roundtable, Hervé Hoppenot, the president and CEO of Insight, said that his company's COVID study protocol was prepared over a weekend with its partner company, Novartis, and it was submitted to the FDA the following Monday morning. So that's just one example, but it's pretty incredible to see, you know, two companies that large work so cohesively and even for that matter over a weekend. Now, the next thing that I touched on in my piece and it's surrounding clinical trials is that 
there's been a call from the public for an increased transparency of trial results. And we see it now in the mainstream media and even in a lesser extent in some memes about the level of trust that people have for the new COVID vaccines as they get distributed around the United States. And, you know, no vaccines have ever been developed as fast as these new COVID ones that are, that are coming out. And people understandably want to know what's being put into their bloodstreams when they get these vaccines. And I think that pharma has done a really good job at responding to that. And the disclosure of trial results has been a bit of a sore spot for the industry at times in the past, but it's nice to see now that this is an area that has improved the past year. And I think if we keep progressing down this path, I think that an increased disclosure of trial results could save time in research and aid in more accurate decision-making. And I think that we're seeing that now with the COVID vaccines and how quickly the research has been developed regarding those. And now the final point that I touched on and sticking with clinical trials still has been the fast adaptation of decentralized trials. And I know as editors and writers here at PharmExec in our daily meetings, it seems like we talk about decentralized trials almost every day. So I can't imagine how often healthcare professionals have been talking about them in their day-to-day -day lives the past 10, 11 months now. So I think that decentralized trials are going to aid in relieving another pain point for pharma and that's been low participation in trials and requiring patients to make in-person visits when, when only absolutely necessary, or even if they have to at all for that matter, can save them time traveling, time missed at work, and even out-of-pocket money. And those are obviously all very important things to consider for patients. So just to wrap up, I think that in 2021, as we hopefully get back to work and school and just recreating some level of normalcy, hopefully at some point here, Pharma's agile innovation, it, it really can't afford to be slowed down and it's great to see. And, you know, I'm excited to see what 2020 holds for the entire industry. Lisa, Julian, Miranda, Andy, thank you so much for sharing your insights on the coming year for Pharma. It certainly looks like it promises to be another interesting one for the industry. Thanks, okay. Elaine. Thank, thank you. Elaine. Thanks, Elaine. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At TrueSterum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. TrueSterum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at TrueSterumNTWK.com. And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from Pharma Execs. Hello, this is Lou Bender. I'm the founder, president, and CEO of Intensity Therapeutics, and we're a small biotech company developing a new treatment for cancer. Uh, I'd like to provide my business or leadership tip in the form of what a leader really should be for their staff, and that is the visionary. Uh, but you can't be a visionary without the ability to communicate effectively your vision. And so you should think about on a daily basis, how is my vision being communicated to the staff? How am I letting them see what I see in the most clear and efficient way? If you can do that, you can motivate the people to share your vision. You inspire them to take upon themselves to also improve upon the vision with you. 
And together, you and your staff can get that vision to, a, to an accomplishment. To achieve a vision is a wonderful thing. And it, it can only happen when you can communicate it effectively. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Farmexec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com.